Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Alex Danko, repeat guest at Social Capital, and Kim Mai Cutler, partner at Initialized Capital. And the topic we're going to talk about today is housing. So perhaps, Alex, you could start and sort of introduce what brought you to an interest in in that topic and and how have you uh, approached your exploration therein? Absolutely. You know, thanks again for having me on, Eric. Housing is one of these conversations that housing and housing affordability and land and just like, where do we live and why do we live there and how does it affect all of our lives has been something that I was peripherally interested in for a little while. But I really got interested in it over the last year or so by a couple of books that I read where either one or both of them, I'm not sure, were recommendations from Kim. So thank you for that. One of them is called uh, Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing by Josh Ryan Collins and a couple other people. And the other is a book called Crabgrass Frontier, which is a book about the suburbanization of the United States. Reading those two books, those are two books that just absolutely flipped my point of view on its head about how all kinds of things worked. And really just got me thinking, it created a lot of questions that I don't necessarily know I have answers for now. So Crabgrass Frontier is a book that is now a couple decades old, but it sort of talks about, I guess the, the, the tagline is the suburbanization of the United States. So how in a lot of countries, but specifically in America, we created this new kind of, we call it a consumer good or a financial product or a way of life or really all of the above which is called the suburban house for the middle-class family. Sort of as a way of kind of codifying the American dream, the idea that you could build something out of nothing. And the path for you to do that economically was the modest suburban house that you would own and was yours. And so there all this, this whole interesting history about how that came to be, both in terms of things like transportation and technology, what happened after the wars, uh, and most most importantly, what's happened in policy and economics, right? Because I think we live in this world where we have certain assumptions about the way things are and the way that housing works that are actually just completely a figment of what is the case politically. But because it's like, you know, a fish in the water and they ask each other what's water because it's just so ubiquitous, a lot of the way that housing works is like that. You know, it's hard for us to question because we've never lived in any other way. And then second, this book, Rethinking the Economics of Land of Housing, is precisely that. It's sort of walking us through, here are all the aspects of housing that you probably have not thought about, but are actually very important, because there are all kinds of other ways this could go that would have very different implications, and here's where we are today. I'm third generation to Bay Area, um, and actually, you know, every generation of my family that's come, come to the region have been immigrants who come here to seek out, you know, a better life and get involved in the technology industry. And, you know, when I think about when my grandfather first arrived in in this part of the United States, I think California had like a sixth of the population that has today. When my mother arrived, it had half the population is today. Um, And then I grew up in the South Bay and the house that uh, I grew up in was built the year that Steve Jobs graduated from high school. And if you look at the neighborhood that I grew up in, it actually looks largely the same as it did when Steve Jobs graduated high school, except today, Apple is one of the most valuable or is the most, I have to, you know, I have to check the ranking and read, but like, you know, it's the most valuable corporation in the world. 
and it's created thousands and tens of thousands of jobs. And yet the built environment in the South Bay hasn't changed substantially relative to the scale of job creation and population growth that that this region has experienced. And so that's contributed to you know what you see you see and read about in everyday news. And it literally affects every different income tier of the an entire kind of labor force within the region. So, you know, at the lowest income level, homelessness was not really a widespread phenomenon in California until the early 1980s. And then it, it started appearing um, more broadly, I would say, in around 1982. And it was so new and novel and unheard of at the time that Diane Feinstein, who is today our senator and was mayor at that time, pledged in the San Francisco Chronicle article that she would be able to end a homelessness and get everyone into shelters by Christmas in 1982. Wow. Um, and obviously that didn't happen and it persisted and became normalized over the next 35, 37 years. And then if you go kind of up the ladder, you're looking at the working class of the Bay Area spending, you know, a very disproportionate amount of their take-home income, if not virtually all of their take-home income on, on, on rent. And you're looking at kind of overcrowding, evictions. And then if you look more at the middle class level, if you look at California migration patterns overall, um, net net, the state's population is still growing because births um, are larger than deaths. And we also have a lot of international immigration. But if you look at domestic migration, we've had negative net domestic migration for most of the years in this century, as a lot of middle-class Californians just can't afford to keep up with the cost of housing here. So they end up moving out to the Southwest or Texas or somewhere else with a lower cost of living. I don't know if you can comment on this. I saw online a statistic that may be true. I don't know if you have insight into this, which is the U-Haul index or like the price of a U-Haul to San Jose versus from San Jose was massively skewed in the from direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, those numbers change constantly, but those are not surprising. I mean, those would be, again, like San Jose's population is still growing, but mm-hmm. on a domestic migration level, people who, you know, Californians, people who were born here, raised here, a lot of folks who don't, who aren't at that highest income command, they're just making the decision that it makes sense to move out to the Central Valley or to somewhere else in the United States that has a more affordable cost of living. And, you know, we are a region with some of the highest percentages of mega commuters in the entire country, which are folks commuting in from the San Joaquin Valley in Stockton, making three hour round trips a day just to get to work um, in different parts of the Bay Area. I I commute from Toronto, but that's not quite the same thing. (laughs) No, it's not the same. Yeah. And so so more recently, uh, just to make sure that anybody in the audience who isn't acquainted uh, with this. Uh, I think, at least in my mind, you are best known, at least around housing, for a particular TechCrunch article about owls and about uh, everything that's been going on. Can you uh, just give like a very brief summary of what sure. that was all about? So in 2014, you know, having having kind of seen what I described, which is like, you know, this amazing amount of job creation, wealth creation happened over the last generation or two generations in the Bay Area, and then seeing it being so much of a zero sum game, at least in terms of real estate was very confusing to me. I was kind of like, well, you know, why can't we actually make the investments that we see other, other, other cities make in transit infrastructure? Why can't we just build more apartment buildings? And, you know, that's, that's 
an onion with many layers, it turns out. And if you peel that onion, I mean, at the surface level, I think you would be looking at stuff like zoning restrictions or, you know, what is permitted to be built somewhere in, in, in a city. And so this is, this is just the surface level argument that like, if you look at California, California started down zoning and, and creating housing restrictions significantly in hmm. the 1970s or about 40 years ago. And that coincided with a number of things like the fact that a lot of the buildable flatland, because it's just much easier to build say in the basin of you know the San Jose basin or than it is to build on like hills or hilly terrain. When a lot of that, that relatively easy to develop land got um, suburbanized by the late sixties, you know, communities started downzoning and restricting apartment buildings. And then later in the 1970s, Californian voters ensconced this structure in our entire tax system by passing Proposition 13, which just locks in their property taxes based on what they initially paid for their house. It is still um, unreal to me that that is a thing. Like, yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know this sounds kind of arcane, but it is really, I mean, it is really a core part of like any kind of of, of structural issue, you know, where you're looking at like, why can't Californian cities like finance basic services? Why has the public education system eroded so much for the last 40 years? Mm-hmm. Proposition 13 is a really instrumental part of that. And it also bakes into like the very land and real estate structure of the state, a lot of inequity. So like there was a, another famous podcast episode for revisionist history where he looks at the Brentwood or the Beverly Hills golf course and finds that, you know, it has this insanely low tax rate that's like back, dated back to evaluation from 40 or 50 years ago. Right. Oh, sure. yeah. So like, you can go into a city and like Disneyland's paying like a mid 1970s tax rate. Right. And, you know, someone who bought a house yesterday is paying like taxes on the house as it's currently worth rather than, you know, when that house might've been worth like $50,000 a generation and a half ago. So I mean, effectively this traps people in their homes, right? Or yeah, it disincentivizes them from moving. If, if say, you know, like it might make sense for if you're an older person, it might make sense to have, you know, a place that's easier to travel to and from or to have like a smaller place or to have a place where you might be able to have like a care worker live with you or something like that, rather than have being in a five bedroom home. And at the same time, there's really not as much turnover. We have half the rate of turnover that other states do um, in terms of home sales. It means that a lot of the family sized housing stock is not really available for people starting to have families today. The way things are today is not the natural order of things, right? It um, arrived this way because of a series of many, many things that all happened in sequence and a whole bunch of economic forces and cultural forces and societal forces that got us to now in this particular way. But I feel like it'd be really fun just to sort of take a step back first and ask, what is housing and what is land, right, from the point of view of the residential consumer and the average Joe homeowner? How did this get from being something that gave us shelter to being the most financialized asset there is, you know, over the last 200 years or so? I mean, it, it goes back further than 200 years. It right. Goes back More than 200 like years. Yeah. 700 or 800 years. I mean, it, it's a particular idea that's rooted in English enclosure laws. You know, the notion that, you know, back in medieval England, you might have had like a commons or a mm-hmm. commons where like, you know, your livestock would be grazing it collectively. And then, you know, 
at some point in the 16th century, it got subdivided into different plots of land. And from an agricultural perspective, that was probably a very useful thing to do because then it incentivized each farmer who's working each piece of land to maximize kind of the return that they got out of their land. Right. Right. Well, this is a really important point because it sort of sets the difference between land that is productive, right? So land that is acting like capital and that we make sheep on it or we make timber on it or something versus land that is not being productive, right? A house sits on it, but that's it. Yeah. But then of course, like if you know, if you remember over time, like eventually, you know, land and land ownership became more and more consolidated. And then this led to particularly like within industrialization, like a more aristocratic class. And I mean, you know, the U.S. uh, was kind of an escape valve for a lot of the pressures that that system created, right? And so, you know, we, our our property rights system is derived from that, that English system. And it was the basis of revolutionary era America until the industrial period, which was the combination of the English uh, system that was derived from with the combination of the frontier mentality. Right. Right. There was always more land on the frontier, provided that, you know, you ignored the people that were already there and all kinds of other sort of horrible, sad aspects of the system. their land and quote unquote settle it or whatever. But, you know, yeah. And so like up until the industrial era, that was effectively the model that that the U.S., had and operated on. And then in the industrial period, the place of people's residence and the place where they worked became separated into two. So like, you know, no longer were people necessarily earning an income from the land that they worked on or that they owned, you know, they were becoming commuters and they were moving from say apartment buildings or tenements to factories. Right. And it was in this period where um, cities became really, really heavily populated during this this gilded age of also a lot of inequality that the kind of seeds of a similar conversation started happening. I was speaking about this on David Perel's podcast about a month ago of this interesting time sort of before the car when we had a phenomenon where the factory had to be in the center of town because goods could only move by rail or by by water. Right. So that's where the industry had to be. And people could basically only move with their legs. Right. They could walk or, you know, in time we created things like streetcars and stuff like that. But people also had to be relatively close by. So this created a particular pattern of inequality where rich people could afford to live far away. But everybody else was essentially limited to living on top of where the industry was, which also was expensive because it's the site of where the industry was. So that, you know, changed massively with the advent of the car, not just of the car allowing people to move, but also the truck, right? Because where they work, can also move. But we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, I think, I think that's like actually several decades later, but. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it, it was, but sorry, my point was, my point was more back in the industrial, yeah. the industrial times. So it was the point that people had to live fairly close to where this was going on. And that in itself created a lot of pressures because necessarily low income workers had to live in a place where land was expensive. And that created. Right. Did you did you ever get to um, Henry George in either of the two books? I'm pretty sure he must have been mentioned in the. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Henry George lived in the Mission District. Oh, I didn't know that. San Francisco, the 1860s, and he showed up here after the. I believe he showed up here. I want to say after the Gold Rush. I could be wrong, but like he's most famous for the period after the gold gold rush when he's writing in this in the 1860s and 1870s, but he's a journalist, you know, he's working in the newspaper industry then and is 
very kind of poor, living hand to mouth. And he writes a number of essays at that time around when the transcontinental railroad is getting finished. And he writes this essay called what the railroad will bring. Right. And he kind of points out that, you know, once this railroad connects San Francisco to the rest of the world, I mean, it will bring a lot of prosperity and economic growth, but all of the value it's bringing is also eventually going to get priced into the land. Um, and that's going to make it pretty hard for people who don't own land to kind of keep up with those costs. And, and he yep. kind of had this realization when he was like riding around on a horse in the Oakland Hills around that period of time where he, he realized that land itself is kind of like a wedge. It, you know, elevates those above it and it crushes those who are below it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and in some sense, like the current situation is kind of a modern phenomenon of that, which is... Absolutely. Um, we bring like- a lot of progress, technological progress into to the region but a lot of it is just captured by rising land values, which doesn't necessarily mean more productivity or better resource allocation. It just means rents and, and property values are just higher and more expensive for people. Right. Who don't know. I mean, that's probably an important point to mention, which is that, you know, why is it that land would just keep absorbing and absorbing and absorbing more of these rents, which is not something that is supposed to happen economically with capital. Yeah. Right. There's a, this critical distinction. This is one of the really interesting points that gets made early on in rethinking the economics of land and housing is emphasizing this point, which is that land and capital are not the same, but we often treat them like they are. Right. So as a as a little refresher, right, if you think about modern economics is based around this central idea called marginal productivity theory, which basically says if a widget factory is profitable, then we make more widget factories. And if a widget maker employee gets a good wage, then people go get more widget training. So ultimately, like if the market sees the capital of some kind is getting good return, then we go make more of it up until the point where the marginal unit of capital added is generating value in equilibrium to its cost. Now, it's like there, yes, there are lots of well-documented issues and problems with marginal productivity theory about what happens when it meets the real world. But nonetheless, the basic point is important in general, which is that if the market wants, we can make more capital. Now, there's this question. Well, that's well. here's the thing. Is land capital? Well, it used to be, right? It used to be that two conditions were true, right? One, the value of land was in what it produced, right? So it made crops or it made timber, so that's acting like capital. And second, there was a lot of wilderness. So you could go make more land if you wanted to, right? Its supply and its ability could increase to meet market conditions. But now, right, we are in this point where we can't make any more land, right? And that land is not actually producing anything. It's just sitting there, right? We can't make any more of it but the demand of it goes up, right? So if there's a lot of economic growth in a place and the demand for uh, land is going up, then the rent that it can charge to its tenants just goes up. Now, again, if this were capital, we'd just go make more of it in order to accommodate that. And in some sense, we do actually do this in the sense that at this point, you know, the situation with the Bay Area with tech is becoming so untenable that we are making more land in a sense by migrating a bunch of startups to places like Utah. Like that kind of yeah, is making more making land. Room. I mean, we can't make more, but we're basically, people are domestically migrating out. Businesses exactly. are migrating like, out. Like this can happen, but, but it's hard to do. Back to Henry George. He mm-hmm. becomes, he eventually, he, he writes a book about his ideas called Progress in Poverty. And it is exactly about this very question that so beleaguers anyone who comes to San Francisco, which is like, how can you have a city with so much wealth and then so many people experiencing homelessness? on the streets, right down by market street. Right. 
and it, and he so he publishes that book in the, the late 19th century it becomes one of the most famous and widely published books of that period and generation he eventually runs for mayor of new york but then he dies before the election happens and he becomes part of the vanguard of like a modern progressive movement during the gilded age but you know over the course of the next generation he goes from being one of one of the most widely published authors in the United States to then eventually being forgotten and having his you know legacy not remembered and then we kind of fast forward into the great depression right and at that time Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt is the president of the United States and he has a very different attitude towards american cities than say you or i do right he um, spends part of his childhood, a significant part of his childhood in upstate New York. He loves kind of the nature and the open air and the natural, you know, the health and the natural like beauty of that environment. And he contrasts that to the city, which is polluted and full of poverty. And he, in the midst of, of you know, these kinds of considerations, thinks about a way, like, how can we get back to this ideal, maybe of this American agrarian period, this pre-industrial period where, you know, people and Americans have an asset that they can, you know, rely on and, or, you know, derive wealth from even when, you know, they're sick or in times of hardship or whatever. And a lot of this is the Jeffersonian ideal, right? The idea of everyone being the master of their little unit of whatever it is they have. You know, he thinks about this and he gives actually an early speech about it in his initial campaign in San Francisco, I want to say, maybe it was 1932. Um, and then he goes on to form, he, he goes on to use these ideas as the basis of, you know, what we conceive of today as like a modern American homeownership ideal. He builds all these institutions, you know, like to, to create kind of a complex, like, Backdoor kind of financial system to enable this type of broad asset slash homeownership to to many millions of Americans, right, in the midst of the Great Depression, and that kind of that kind of becomes the basis of the Crabgrass Frontier Book, which is mm-hmm. letting letting like like a federal a massive federal subsidy program that moves tens and tens of millions of Americans out of cities and into suburbs, and at the same time, it's also important to again emphasize that this particular set of programs is really only largely available to, to white American families and households. And well, that was actually, um, maybe you know more about this than I do, but I read some, I remember something interesting, a point that this book made, which is so, I think what you're hinting at is sort of the practice of redlining, which people yeah. may have heard of, which is basically these structured, formalized sets of rules that prohibited, you know, large, just like African-American people and other people from other types of communities that people, you know, rich white people did not want moving into their neighborhoods, basically a systemic practice to deny uh, those people from being able to get mortgages and being able to buy homes. It what wasn't per se a program that would deny them, like deny, like directly deny them access to finance. But what it would do was, it, you know, they would, Polk would create maps. The homeowners, <laughs> loan, the homeowners Loan Corporation would create maps of different American cities. And there would be zones that were, you know, neighborhoods that were okay to, for the government to um, back. Oh, that's right. It was, right. That's right. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was the government back credit. 
what I remember is uh, something like it was like the the original homeowners program actually legally was not allowed to discriminate. They just created this set of standards by which all these private lenders who then came in afterwards in the next generation basically said, we can do whatever we want because we're private and we are going to use your redlined maps to then start discriminating pretty systemically. Yeah. So the, the maps basically like like the non-red parts of the maps were generally considered areas that were financially stable and quote unquote safe to lend to. And they happen to be more mm-hmm. predominantly white neighborhoods. Right. Um, and this is famously covered in Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which is a third book you can read. It's also a great book. Um, it includes lots of Bay Area examples. We'll write that um, down. And then the red parts of, you know, the red parts of the map were like usually neighborhoods of color, people of color that banks would not underwrite to because those loans were not backed by, by federal programs. So what that created was this racial disparity in wealth between people and households that owned homes in, you know, the green or blue parts of the maps where federal financing enabled those property values to rise. And then like a relative lack of wealth creation in the red parts of the maps where the lack of uh, federal support for lending meant that those property values didn't rise or stagnated or fell even. And then in the private market, the behavior that that was reinforced was this um, idea that if you had people of color, African-Americans who wanted to buy homes in like a white neighborhood, people would start to freak out that that would cause property values to drop. And so if you look at, at different examples of different cities, you know, some of the, the behaviors that that created were like people would straight up like if an African-American um, family tried to move into a house, like there would be protests, people would terrorize them, set things on fire. You know, these are behaviors that even happened here in Northern California. So, you know, this created this foundation where if you look at what kind of modern black and white um, household wealth disparity is today, like a lot of that is rooted in, in, in homeownership. So anyway, so this program enabled tens of millions of Americans to move out of cities. And so suburbs were created. The wealth of cities stagnated because so much of the middle-class wealth was leaving these cities. And for a while, like I said, I mean, this, you know, this uh, great quote unquote expansion of land supply through the creation of the suburbs and the construction of the highway infrastructure system created at least for white American households, an entire generation of prosperity. And in California, I would say for those particular households, it probably, you know, it did work for a generation or two. But then, like I said, beginning in the 1970s and, you know, 1960s and late 70s and stuff, a lot of that flat, cheaply buildable land, at least in coastal California, got filled out. And the reaction to that was to just to to the pressure to take single family homes and turn them into apartment buildings the response to that was just to, to downzone and restrict the creation of apartments and create to create apartment bans, mm-hmm. um, which still exists today all over California. So, so, I mean, something interesting like that, that's worth highlighting, um, Eric, you know, I know you love to talk about things that are like zero sum versus positive sum and how like things that are positive sum are great. You know, there is a point of view that you can take that a lot of uh, the value of land and particularly of residential land for housing is actually negative sum. And the reason why I say negative sum is that unlike, you know, capital or a business or something that has value in what it allows you to create, a lot of the value of residential land is in its ability to allow you to exclude. So 
like part of it is like is pretty basic, which is like, you know, I own a house, I own a small piece of land here. It's like I have the ability to exclude other people from doing things to my land. You know, that seems pretty clear. But also most beyond that, my house also has some value because the city of Toronto places exclusions on what my neighbors can do with their land. Right. So it means they somebody can't just go build a bar or build a factory next door to my house and make the property values come down. Right. Part of the the whole value of this and what's reinforcing the fact that people want it is based on exclusion rather than creation of anything. Yeah, I think the other key thing to remember also is how our education system and access to pub, like good public schools is also tied up in property ownership in America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where you live governs. Um, where you can send your kids to school. And so you, via that exact habit, you're, you're also baking, baking in educational inequity, right? Right. What's where you can send, where you send your kids to school is actually just sort of conversely, it's where other people are not allowed to send their kids to your school. Correct. That's how I'd even think about that, right? It's, it's yeah, it's based, it's, it's very, very much based on exclusion. Yeah. So again, it's like part of this, part of this makes a lot of sense, which is that again, none of these sources of value are like naturally occurring, right? They come from the government and they come from the law and they come from the political system. So it makes a lot of sense that homeowners, you know, if you give them an ounce of political say or political influence of which they have a lot because they are the people with money, right? will do a lot of things in their power to make sure that they can you know, have the government write policy and pass laws and create structures that will preserve their ability to keep things the way they are. Um, I think it's important to mention that, I mean, if you look at any different, any kind of housing system anywhere in the world, um, they are all mixed systems. Like there's not, there's not like a perfect quote unquote, like entirely free market system. Because again, like you said, like if you have property rights, if you have exclusive rights to use a specific piece of land or specific piece of property, there's usually, you know, there's invariably a state or government or someone enforcing that, that exclusive right to that land and also, you know, has monopoly use of force to back it up. And so like That's these right. yes. are deeply intertwined and they're inextricable from each other. There's really nothing free market about this system, except for the fact that the prices freely trade. Yes. So, but like, you know, if you look at other countries, like if you look at Germany, for example, Germany is a majority tenant country. It does not, you know, I think the homeownership rate, I want to say is in the low 40 percentage point, like low 40s there, whereas in the United States, it's like in the 60s. And so these federal programs amount to a 20 percentage point difference between um, our homeownership rate relative to their homeownership rate. And in a tenant majority society, um, you know, they just pursue a whole different range of policies that are basically not, you know, not probably not feasible in the United States because you don't have kind of the voter block numbers to make them happen. Or if you look at Japan, for example, Japan is kind of famous for the fact that in many situations, houses actually depreciate in Japan. They, homes are considered more disposable there. I think that, you know, from what I understand, from what I read, that's kind of based in, you know, a history of frequent disasters and earthquakes and the constant need to update building codes um, and also the fact that they have national level zoning rather than hyperlocal zoning. And so it has this, it has all kinds of interesting cultural um, third or second and third order effects. Like they're able to support say like a higher percentage of architects per capita right. than in the U S or UK are. Oh, because, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Because you can, you don't have to worry about resale value of the home as much as you do here. Right. And so like, and also when, there's more demand for architecture for making new things because we're continuously remaking them. Right. 
So like in, in the US and the UK, what happens here is old homes get rehabbed into luxury homes, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you when you invest in a home, you also have to worry about, you know, is this not just palatable to, you know, you, the consumer, but it's going to be palatable to the next person who wants to purchase it after you. And so like that creates a moderating influence on real estate and like architecture generally in the United States. Cause you have to That's worry right. about what the median consumer would be interested in. Whereas in- I feel like, yeah, I feel like that also hints at something that we should get to talk about in a little bit, which is the expectation of housing prices going up and selling right. them for profit as being a massive driver of things, but we'll get to that. No, I mean, I mean, we can get to that. We can get to that now. I mean, I think this is like the, the fundamental contradiction in the U.S. and the British and the Australian and the Canadian model of housing, which is also, you know, all rooted in the same mm-hmm. system, which is it's hard to keep. You can't keep housing broadly affordable at the same time that you want housing to be a good investment. Yeah, because people haven't grokked that. I mean, we kind of do all these very strange workarounds where like if you look in Californian cities, you know, voters are going to reelect or elect politicians and their ability to protect and enhance and deliver higher and higher property values. And yet at the same time, they're like, well, why can't anyone who was like me 30 years ago move here anymore? That's and, right. It's like, it feels like uh, looking back a generation ago is like watching house hunters. It's like, what do you do? Oh, I'm an elementary school teacher. Oh, and I am a ghost hunter. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Oh, our budget is, you know, $1.2 million. We're looking for a uh, introductory bungalow right somewhere in South Bay. It's like, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like what you see in the modern conversation today is like people want, they're like, why aren't developers building um, affordable housing? Well, you look at San Francisco you know, just base costs, it's like at least 700 to 900K per apartment unit just to build a unit. And now, like, why are those houses so high, right? Is that because of earthquakes and because of land costs? Is it because labor is more expensive? Like, it's what all are of the above. drivers to that? It's, it's all of the above. So, yeah, yes, it's partially land costs. Like, uh, the land costs vary considerably depending on where you are in the cycle. So, like, at the beginning of the cycle, they might have the beginning of the last cycle, they might've been, you know, like a hundred K per unit. And then closer to the top of the cycle, it might've been like 250 K a unit or whatever, just in land Mm -hmm. costs. Construction costs are very high. It is, it is more expensive to build in an earthquake zone. There are extra considerations that we have to use in, in constructing housing here. And then, you know, labor is also a constraint as well. Um, in the last recession or what happens every recession is, you know, we lose a lot of construction workers every cycle who kind of phase out of the industry when they don't have reliable salaries or work. And then they leave. And, you know, we weren't training a sufficient number of workers to replace them going into this cycle. And so, you know, we have a a, a massive labor shortage on the construction side, both in terms of who we trained and also because um, we're not getting the same number of immigrants who can fulfill those roles. And also because like the, the Bay Area's regional construction labor supply is so constrained that like a major project like Apple headquarters or the Trans Bay Terminal, like that does have a material impact on the number of workers that are available to do any given project. And then of course, because my impression, you know, sort of naively walking into this was that effectively, you know, the demand for housing in the, in the Bay Area is so high that if developers were allowed to build something that would house a lot of people, they would find a way to do it if they were allowed to. And the problem of not enough apartment units being built and not enough housing units being built, you know, in a mid-rise or a high-rise or something is not a function of 
contractors and supply being inability, unable to fulfill it. It's the fact that they are not allowed to do so for various well, legal or you know, community it's blocking. It's a relative things. comparison of two things. It's like, how much is the person willing to sell? The, how much is the original landowner willing to sell the land for? How much does construction labor cost? And construction labor is a really, I mean, it, it, that, that is a really significant thing. So like if construction costs uh, and labor costs are rising like 15% year over year and rents are not rising as fast as that, you know, you, you might hit a situation where the land plus labor plus the fees on top of that just doesn't pencil out relative to the amount of rent that you can, can you expect to collect. If you look at the slowdown in production in the Bay Area, I would say the construction costs relative to that rental, the, the construction cost growth relative to the rental rate growth has also contributed to the slowdown in the last year or two. And again, like the fires are also a significant regional constraint on, on labor. So like when we have to build thousands of new homes or rebuild thousands of homes in Sonoma or Napa County or up, up in the Sierra Nevadas, like that does also take away from the local labor supply as well. So this really is this perfect storm of all kinds of problems and influences that are just all coming together onto this poor region called the Bay Area and says, yeah. well, there's basically no hope that housing will ever be affordable here again, unless, you know, unless what? I mean, you have to d- define what you mean by affordable. Like if you're saying affordable, like every house will cost half as much then you're saying, you know, you're also implicitly saying, I want like an economic or real estate crash to happen so hard that houses lose 50% of their value. Mm -hmm. So I I think you have to define what what you want of that outcome. I mean, because we've tied ourselves to this particular model, like. um, That's right. I mean, it's true that we mean we should, the other, I mean, the other thing, which is a big um, factor in all this, which we've only touched on really briefly is the fact that house prices are a price that generally we want them to go up. Right. There is something that we celebrate because homeowners, this is a major part of their wealth, right? right. We've reached one of these situations where, you know, this is, this is kind of, it is not exactly the same as, you know, the Jeffersonian ideal and FDR thinking about, oh, everyone should be an owner of something is not the same thing as everybody should be a real estate speculator. Right. Yeah. I think, I think this is one of the, this, so going back to this question, like people want the value of housing to rise and then they get upset if the prices of newly constructed homes are also at that level, um, right? So like, so going back to the number of seven to 900 K just mm-hmm. to get a unit out the door, it's roughly the same cost. It's about the same cost. If you want to do a market rate unit versus like a nonprofit built affordable housing unit, the nonprofit affordable unit might actually be a little bit more expensive because the cost of financing may be higher because you have to assemble financing from, from more different sources. You have to use federal tax credits, state programs. And then at the local level, typically in San Francisco, if you want to build um, a unit of affordable housing, you still need to generally accumulate like $300,000 per unit in local subsidy on top of the federal and state programs. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about building a sizable number of affordable housing units, you know, these are not small ball numbers like if you want to build a thousand units three thousand units ten thousand whatever like you're getting into the hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars pretty easily and depending on how you look at that from a taxpayer's perspective you know you could look at that and be like well three hundred thousand dollars in local subsidy per affordable housing unit versus you know like eleven thousand dollars per k-12 through student per year 
right. to send a kid to, to, to school or 16,000 or whatever per student to send a kid to university in the state of California. Right. Um, very the numbers between those two things are kind of astronomical. At the same time, you could also look at affordable housing as a, a kind or a form of infrastructure. And maybe the, the comparable is something like a bridge or a tunnel or whatever, right? And, you know, if you build an affordable unit today, it'll probably be there for a century. And you could have, like, many families occupy that, that unit over the course of many decades and generations. This isn't quite the same thing, but there are other cities that deal with this aspect of we're spending a lot of money on something that is effectively subsidizing a lot of people's ability to live. In New York City, it's not necessarily building and operating public housing. It's the New York City, the government of New York City employs a lot more people than it needs to. And part of that is deliberate as a way to say, hey, having all these people be able to keep their lives and keep their apartments and keep living in New York City is an important part of the heritage that makes this place great. And we actually do not want to throw this out. And as a result, we are willing to spend some of our large budget on this. But that's a choice that cities can make in order to say this is an important part of what makes the character of the place. I I can't speak for New York City's government because I don't know the particular programs that you're talking about. I would say that it's important to emphasize that we actually we subsidize housing pretty extensively for Americans generally through this homeownership finance model. You know, we, we have subsidized homeownership immensely through right. all kinds of ways, right? So this is, well, I mean, part of the reason why this is difficult is that competing against homeownership effectively, since that will set a certain market rate for what a house costs, right, is how much it costs to buy, right? It's like, in order to catch up to how attractive that is, Right. It's like you, you are up against, you know, the home mortgage deduction, right? You're up against Prop 13. You're up against all of these just massively government enabled transfers of wealth from the country at large into homeowners, which are, you know, a large percentage of Americans. Right. So up until the 2017 tax change, um, the mortgage interest deduction was the fourth largest tax break, federal tax break. It was $70 billion a year. I want to say it's around $25 billion. I'm now. honestly amazed that it was not number three or two or one, honestly. like it, it's, I, it's. I think employer medical insurance might be that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's in the tens of billions of dollars. It mostly goes towards upper middle class households. The larger mortgage you have, the larger tax deduction you get. So it's a regressive subsidy. Mm-hmm. And if you compare that against, say, what we spend... So it was $70 billion a year in 2017. It got... It, fell to, I want to say, around 25 because we took up the standard deduction. If you compare that to, you know, what HUD spends, generally HUD's budget has been in the 40s annually, and Section 8 subsidies only cover one out of every four American families living in poverty today. And then on low-income housing tax credits, which are used to create uh, new affordable units, we spend about $6 billion on those. And then on homelessness, I want to say, I want to say it's three or it was recently three, but like you just kind of compare orders of magnitude like that. It's a very different numbers of zeros that we're talking about. Right. Uh, Well, so zooming up for a second, I want to take that. So outside of the Bay Area, so the Bay Area has, you know, this particular set of circumstances like we talked about, but arguably the largest one is that the tech industry is now here creating all of these mega salaried people. We're all spending money on their houses. But if we sort of zoom out to a more general case, you know, there's something important has started to happen in both not just in the United States, but also in other countries, although not all of them. So not Germany necessarily, but in places like England, places like Canada, where 
the price of houses is starting to rise at a faster rate than the economy is growing and faster than people's wages are growing. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is this important positive feedback cycle that's important for people to understand that essentially goes as following. If mortgages are plentifully available, but land and new houses are fixed, then that will make the price of houses go up. Right. Makes yeah, sense. I, mean, I, I think yeah. important caveat to mention there is, I mean, this is mostly a metro phenomenon, an urban phenomenon. If you look at um, the median house price nationally in the United States, I want to say it's just like just above 200 K. So if, you're not, if you're willing to not live near jobs, you know, and, and not near a, th- a quote unquote thick labor market where there's a lot of different job opportunities to switch to um, if one job or oppor- opportunity falls through, then you can find affordable. No, that's right. So that it's not, I'm not, the point that I'm trying to make is not that um, houses are, you can't find an affordable house anywhere because that's definitely not true. I a hundred percent agree with you that there are lots of places where one of the appeals to them is that they are really nice, great places to live where you can actually get an affordable house. But what I wanted to go with this is just sort of this observation that the fact that houses have been turned into this asset that we speculate on has emerged in this interesting way, which is that, you know, if, if there's lots of mortgages and a fixed supply of houses, right, it makes the price of houses go up. And then if that price is going up, but the amount of wage you're making stays about the same, then you have to make, get a bigger mortgage, right? right. And if people are getting bigger mortgages and they're getting more mortgages, then banks not only make more money, they also get a bigger capital base, which means they can issue more mortgages. Right. So you start to get this feedback cycle that says, okay, well, what this will drive, it'll drive the people's houses up and also the price of the mortgages that they have up in tandem. Right. So this expectation for rising prices and rising prices becomes something where if you have bought in, this is a thing that you want to happen and that your house price going up will confirm that you were right to do that. Right. I think one thing that I would emphasize in this is like, the generational inequity in it, which is, you know, like the assets of the old or the debts of the young, let's say. So like, you know. Well, you know, not not necessarily if your parents through the wealth that they have right. made by their house appreciating are able to give you a down payment, right? right? Then that becomes just generational transfer of wealth that is right. codified in a particular way. Right. So like for like at a, a large scale, before we consider like the, the, the like inheritance issue, you know, like. It, it's a common phenomenon. You'll be in the Barry, you'll be in, in like a community meeting and folks there, you know, they might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm middle class or, you know, I got in when I was like a whatever in the 1970s or eighties. Right. Um, it's not real wealth to me. And that may be true. They may not have taken out a HELOC or a second mortgage or used it to purchase another home. And they are just totally legitimately, you know, fixed income seniors but at the same time, you know, if they sold their house or if someone new wanted to move into that neighborhood, you know, that person, the new person would have to pay, you know, They'd have maybe to pay five or right? Yeah. right. I don't know if you saw there was this FT piece like a week ago about quantitative easing. It was just a provocative piece, right? It was called quantitative easing is the father of millennial socialism. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, pro- I'd click on that piece. Good you click on that piece. You click on that piece. Yeah. No, I mean, it was just a provocative argument, basically. Like, people made the decisions that they needed to make during that crisis. I, you know, but in retrospect, like, you look at the decisions that they were made, and rather than question the structure of our housing system after that particular housing-led crisis, we just kind of restarted the whole thing again, right? And we did it in a way that caused asset values to, you know, in a lot of these different cities to just, you know, more than double in value at the expense of like 
the next generation's ability to, um, you know, find stable housing near jobs and near uh, sources of economic mobility. And so, you know, that precarity has kind of led to the political situation that we have now, which is like younger generation feels locked out. They're indebted by student loans. None of the housing that is near work is affordable or accessible to them. And, And that's feeling like a lot of the different kind of more the different conversations we're having today about like, you know, the, the, the economic model of the last generation. Right. Well, so setting aside student loans for a second, because that's yeah. a, an immense thing, but let's just put it, put it on the side for a second, yeah. right? There is something interesting to contemplate, which is that if you look at sort of the, the millennial socialist ill will or whatever, whatever it is that the FT called it, something interesting that I do want to point out, which is that if you look at a lot of sort of the rhetoric and a lot of sort of the the socialist phrases that are starting to get thrown around and a lot of the, the sort of resentment that's happening, there is a particular kind of, there's a line that you hear sometimes, which is like, capitalism is theft, right? It's like, if you own things like that is stealing effectively from, on the one hand, people who either made the thing, labor, or B, society who created the conditions by which you were able to get rich in a capitalist sense. Right now, we reject that argument because it's like, oh, well, if this capital is making useful things, it's because somebody built it, right? It's because you built this business, right? And that's why you deserve to have some of it. But land may not be like that, right? It's like land, actually, I think there is a much more legitimate claim to say you did nothing to earn this million dollar piece of land aside from be at the right place in the right time and see all these gains accrue to you, right? Right. Like, I do think, like, I mean, in Laurie's book, I mean, there's a whole section about this duality that property ownership has, which is it's both freedom and it's both theft, right? So it's freedom in the sense that it's an asset that you can then use or lever or, you know, use to get access to more capital or more freedom or whatever elsewhere. But at the same time, if it was land that was once in the public domain and now only, you know, one entity or a private entity has exclusive access to use it, then it it's no longer accessible to everyone else. So. Right. And you get to use the power that you have in order to exclude other people from doing things. Right. Right. So, so he makes an interesting point where he talks about Piketty later on in the book and saying, like, here's a, sort of a revision that he has. I was supposed to like, are the billionaires causing all the problems, you know, with economic immobility and inequality and things like that. And there's a point here, which is say like, hey, you know, millennial socialists who are upset, Right it may be that you are pointing your fingers at the wrong people. Like maybe it actually shouldn't be the billionaires that you're mad at because billionaires, you know, largely will have their wealth in the form that of actual capital that is out in the world producing things, right? It's in the form of businesses and stuff that at least in theory could be put towards socially useful purposes. It's like, what if the real villain is actually Joe homeowner, right? Where the majority of his wealth is in his million dollar house on paper, which is offset by his million dollar mortgage, right? That he owes to the bank therefore creating this wedge that is just sort of reinforcing generation after generation, like you said, giving you more power if you're above the wedge and less opportunity if you're below the wedge. I don't, I don't know if I would go that far to then um, absolve all, all. (laughs) I'm not trying to absolve. I would would say that land and and this property question is a huge component of, of a lot of the stresses that we're seeing today in urban communities and cities and among younger workers who once would have had access, you know, long-term access to these job markets and may not in the long term. Well, that's right. And again, like the, the, the frustrating thing about this is I think a lot of the promise of housing as a source of wealth that is useful for the average Joe homeowner, like you said, like it is a source of freedom. It's like yeah. that is true 
except for the fact that if you are starting out with a housing market that is very expensive, then buying into something that is expensive is not helpful to you because having a million dollar house that's offset by a million dollar mortgage isn't freedom, right? It's, it's not, it's not not that at all, except for the fact that your mortgage, if everything goes well, is a source of cheap leverage that is backed up by the government. Right. right, that's still true, but you are not actually benefiting from it being expensive, and it be, the land being expensive does not actually contribute anything to the economy at all. Yeah. So going back to this original, how did we get here? Question. I think so. I started writing about this maybe five years ago, and I think it is important to point out that as a political movement, there have been a lot of gains and improvements over the last two or three years. There were fifteen bills passed under Jerry Brown in twenty seventeen. Um, including one that um, made it possible to have a buy right process uh, for new housing developments in cities that have, you know, repeatedly not um, performed up to their housing projections, projection standards. And so that's totally kind of changed the landscape for approving in particular 100% affordable housing. And that's made the process like much you know, much more predictable and much faster. And then in 2018, there were another eight bills passed, including one that gave BART and transit systems more ability to to kind of control whatever is built on, you know, their own land. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, like if you had a BART station in a city, like the city would have jurisdiction over, you know, how much housing could be built on the BART station land. And now that's not the case anymore. And so our, our, our regional transportation systems can now build transit-oriented development and transit-oriented housing all around the major stations. And then going to do like tax increment financing things with that or trying to, you might that's something we're going through right now. You might want to explain what tax increment financing is. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> so, you know, generally speaking, you know, this is something that they do very successfully in places like Asia. And in Toronto, we are going through this struggle similarly with building transit and figuring out how to manage our own need for building lots of houses. That's actually something that we're doing very well. You know, we, we get some little things wrong, but in general, we are building an enormous amount of housing units in Toronto, and it's a good thing we are. Tax increment financing is essentially like, hey, let's say that I want to extend the commuter railroad out to accommodate more people, and we're going to extend it out currently to a place that's just an empty field, right? How can I pay for it? Well, you know, normally in order to issue bonds to pay for extending the, the train, I need to have some sort of revenues that I can, you know, say like, these revenues are here, this is what I'm going to lend against but they don't exist yet because it's a field. What I'd love to do is say, well, if I extend the train there, people will build houses there and then that will provide property tax revenue and other things. And then that will be able to pay back our debts. Like I would love to be able to solve this chicken and egg problem, please. And people have tried to do this to various success. It rarely, at least in North America, it rarely works out as well as people want. And part of the reason why, at least from my understanding, is that people always want to do it to pay for things in places where people already are. And the problem with that is that, well, you're not going to get very much tax increment financing if you're just upgrading an area from city to slightly nicer city. It's like, yes, you'll make slightly more money, but not enough to move the needle very much. It really only works, at least here, for extending the suburbs farther out in practice. Or at least if it can be made to work elsewhere, we haven't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah. So I would, I would kind of stress that historically, California was actually a leader in tax increment financing or in pioneering this particular, at least in the U.S., not relative to other countries. I mean, other countries obviously do um, an exceptional job of it. But in the U.S., California used to do a lot of tax increment financing product projects. The issue was that, you know, later in the 20th century, it started to be used for all kinds of things like pet projects of different city leaders that had nothing to do with affordable housing. 
And during the last recession, Jerry Brown made a decision to end, you know, what we call tax increment financing programs at that time, which were called redevelopment, in order to stabilize public K-12 budgets. And so there is uh, legislation this year to bring back a version of redevelopment or tax increment financing in California that is more specific to affordable housing. Um, I want to say there's probably like 200 different pieces of legislation discussing on housing in this this session. And so I think one of the things that has been remarkable to me as a, you know, a participant and an observer in this process over the last five years, when I started doing this work, I found the whole political system to be really complicated and very intimidating. And I think I would have had a lot of the attitude that I think a lot of more like a lot of folks in the tech industry might have, which is like government can't do anything. But like having watched this process over the last five years and seen, you know, the legislature consistently deliver bills that are signed into law and by the governor in the world's fifth largest economy, the U.S.'s, you know, most populous state year after year, um, really tackling this crisis head on. I mean, I know that we're not there yet, but like, I think that like, it's, it's been frankly really impressive. That's great. That's really good to hear. I married into a highly governmental family. So it's been impressed upon me for the last many years of the ability for government to actually get things done. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I do, I do want to make sure that we touch on one particular recent zeitgeisty trend, which is Amazon and with HQ2 and this new sort of social idea that, you know, is not new, but it's definitely been resurgent in popular conversation around the link between tech companies. And I guess more broadly, uh, like, high income employers, like people who pay lots of money to a certain set of employees coming into places, and then that having a disruptive effect on the particular place where they are and its effect on the housing market and how people will do or don't respond in one case versus another to those things coming in. How have you like thought about this whole process and what to you was surprising versus what wasn't? I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts and also Eric's. It looked like a PR disaster. (laughs) Um, True. Yeah, it looked like a PR disaster, and it looked like a ploy to. What was the? What was the? It was unclear what Amazon's goals were if they weren't going to do that eventually to flex its muscle. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I didn't. I didn't follow super closely, so I'm just from what it looks like from the outside. But a PR disaster for Amazon or a PR disaster for New York City? Both. So, uh, so Both. Amazon definitely, and then also, yeah. So Amazon looked strong. Uh, governments looked weak, and then it looked like. You know, if Amazon's not concerned about, you know, antitrust or just being the big bad wolf, like they exacerbated their issues there and government looked like they kowtowed to Amazon and then lost and then tried to save face. Yeah. I mean, it is worth remembering that Amazon remains massively popular with regular people. I think the particular animosity in this case is not so much just an overall so much as a very local and hyper specific kind of reaction that I think is more a statement about, honestly, it felt to me to be more a statement about the rent is too damn high than it was a statement about Amazon is a big bag tech company who sucks. At least that was my read on the situation. Yeah. Um, so I looked at that and actually the total outcome was totally unsurprising to me. <laughs> Just what happened was what I more or less expected to happen. I think on the Amazon side, Amazon could have run a national contest, but the national contest tactic would have probably only worked with a not New York, LA or Bay Area. That's right. It needed to work. I mean, like, 
there's, there are cities that that could have worked with where it would have been like an ego boosting thing rather than uh, duh, we are New York City. Right. <laughs> Imagine just picking like, that we're the best the national competition duh, and we right? pick the two cities um, that are most commonly cast as villains. Great. Right. Like, great. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, the contest is not something that could have worked with New York City. It just, like, it's it's not that's not a dynamic that plays into New York's sense of self, its sense of identity. And then on top of that, I think what was interesting to to watch, I, I think when I saw some of the initial uh, reaction from Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, I think a lot of people who are not familiar with city politics totally misread the dynamics of that situation. Situation I was watching a lot of other investors say like, "Yeah, that's absolutely crazy" or whatever, and I'm like. Governor Cuomo's job and Ocasio's job and the, and um, GNRS's job, like these are totally different jobs with different goals. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the governor or if you're the mayor, you're responsible, you're, you're CEO kind of, right. So you're responsible for the finances and the total book of finances. Right. And so from that perspective, mayors and governors are always looking for, uh, economic development programs that can boost the revenue or tax base of the city. But on the ledge side, legislators don't like, that's just not their job. Like their job is to be an advocate for their constituents. And it's Ocasio's job to really ask Cuomo and demand of Cuomo, like, did you actually really get the best deal you could have possibly negotiated? Right. They just have different, they have different jobs. And then at the same time, you know, if you look at the dynamics of, working class workers today in American cities today, there was actually a good piece by Emily Badger in the New York times talking about cities and the level of social mobility. They offer low skilled workers. Oh, I read that. I read that piece. Right. And in previous generations, if you were a low skilled worker making minimum wage cities generally would offer you, you know, a much higher level or much higher chance of moving up into higher and higher income quintiles or getting, you know, getting from minimum wage to 20 or 25 or $30 an hour or whatever. And that's, that's kind of no longer the case. Right. It was like, it used to be that the effect of moving to the city was it would boost your income, whether you were working class or rich. And now that has become segmented to only if you are an elite professional. Right. So, so if you pair the income question, right. So like you're a low income worker or low skilled worker, your your wages are probably not going to rise. And then if you pair that with the conversation that we're having, you know, earlier, which is about real estate values and land values, and the fact that, you know, these jobs come in and they effectively double land values or rents, and U.S. cities are no longer uh, sufficiently equipped or financed to create new uh, affordable housing or even maintain the existing stock of affordable housing that they have. I mean, basically, when we've run the numbers in San Francisco, we're essentially running in place. We're able to build a small number, maybe like 200 to 400 new affordable units a year. But at the same time, you know, old rent controlled stock that is at prices from like a generation ago um, is getting converted into condos or old um, affordable housing units. Their deeds and their deed restrictions are um, getting timed out after 30, 40, 50 or 50 years. Um, and so those older affordable housing units that are deed restricted and protected are disappearing as quickly or faster than we can replace them at the same time that the private rental market is doubling. Um, if you take all those things together, if you are 
a low skilled worker in American city and you know, your wages aren't going to go up and the housing stock's going to get totally dissipated. It is in your logical interest to not necessarily be into this employer coming into the local market. And it's also, it also may be in the logical interest of anyone who's elected to represent you to also point that out and make the case to negotiate for, you know, a more demanding agreement, right? So, how, okay, and, and here's, I guess, the part two of the question would be, how much do you think this is, so, so what, what you've described, it could essentially be applied to any large company that pays its employees lots of money. Do you think the fact that it was specifically a tech company that has specific both plays into the larger narrative of disruption and also specifically as a company that has to some extent been cast as a villain in terms of, you know, lots of allegations of workers being treated badly, you know, in the popular consciousness, like how much is this Amazon specific versus how much is this tech specific versus how much of this generally a divide between, you know, a professional class who, you know, makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year widening away from people. And I ask that because we are facing a similar, a different, but in some ways similar backlash here in Toronto over Google's Sidewalk Labs project, which I mean, has nothing I, to do with employment or jobs. I think, I mean, it's, it's tech and like, okay, for one, like only companies that large could even run a national contest like that, get national press for it and um, be in negotiation with large cities at this sort of scale. So it invariably it would be a large company. Like you wouldn't talk about this in terms of like Joe startup or whatever, right? No, that's right. But it could be, I don't know, some large company that nobody's ever heard of like McKesson or something, right? If you know, they maybe, I mean, I, I mean, I do think there was a lot of scrutiny of what was it? The, I can't remember all the different concession deals that were happening with auto manufacturers and with them. Sure. There was, yeah, there was one in Wisconsin as well. That was really famous for the number of, so I think, you know, I would say it's probably tech, tech specific. I don't know if it would necessarily be Amazon. I think in the specific case of Amazon, you know, there was an additional interest from labor unions and labor unions are really powerful in New York. You have to, you have to negotiate with them. And they were trying to use this deal as an avenue to um, start to unionize some of Amazon's workforce. And of course the company has been notorious for not wanting to having any of its workers unionized. So you kind of had the situation where Cuomo's thinking like, hey, I can get $23 billion in additional tax revenue a year because that's his job. Like yep. his job is to boost the tax revenue base, base to pay for stuff that the state government needs to pay for. And then you have local reps who just, you know, they just need to be in a position where they can question or push the deal harder. If you were a smart negotiator in that particular situation, you would have you would have negotiated something with Cuomo and you would have baked in like additional secret concessions that you would then like allow these other participants to claim as wins subsequently. Right. That's right. Which they, I don't know if they did do or didn't do. I, it didn't seem from my understanding, like they hired a lot of local government relations talent, but there were also different dynamics that changed in that particular election when Ocasio beat Crowley. So previous to that, from my understanding, and I'm not, you know, a New York city or state politics person, there used to be a more moderate faction um, within the state legislature called the IDC, and Cuomo could govern that legislature under a world in which the numbers uh, broke down in such a way that to get stuff passed, you needed to compromise with um, Republicans. And then once Ocasio swept Crowley, that basically demonstrated to a number of politicians across that whole 
state or sorry, in that, sorry, in that region that, you know, even if they won, um, their seats were not safe. And so they had to tack left kind of preemptively or proactively in order to, to keep their seats in the subsequent election. Or so even just or performatively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just sort of changed. It sort of changed the dynamics of how people had to position in the Amazon negotiation. And had that not happened, you know, it's possible that the Cuomo deal would have gotten passed. Great. Uh, let me ask you uh, a question. Eric, feel free to chime in uh, if you think here. How do you think that the deployment of more tech, so this includes, you know, ride sharing and eventually autonomous cars, it means a better sort of more efficiency around all sorts of transactions in the city, more, you know, more software and more tech and more of how it, you know, the marketification of everything uh, starts to creep around all of these aspects of living and having a house or having an apartment in cities. How does that start to shape both you know, the economics of who gets to live in cities and where and the political reality going forward. So not just, you know, like the direct, we're going to have people make lots of money and they're going to, you know, make your rent go up, but just sort of the creeping effect of all this other technology. Uh, where do you see that going? I don't know if I have a really specific view on that question, mostly that I think a lot of the situations that each of the examples that you bring up, I mean, they, they, within the context of the public system, they have different responses, right? So like within the context of rideshare, you know, there just needs to be more transparency into how it affects the congestion or how, you know, how the way it's impacting um, ridership on, on fixed line and public transit systems. I, I, yeah, I, I think that anything that I would say have to be specific to like one particular type of product or one particular type of company. Sure. I mean, one, one sort of pet thesis that I have that I'm interested to see how this will play out over time is uh, the thesis essentially goes that the next sort of phase of tech is going to be amazing for the suburbs and may be terrible for the downtowns of cities. So whether that has to do with uh, driverless cars, you know, reducing the effective distance between things, but also creating an incredible amount of induced com- demand and congestion, you know, like as Peter Calthorpe calls it, zero occupancy vehicles. It's like if you hate if you hate single occupancy vehicles, you're going to hate zero occupancy vehicles. But in general, I sort of wonder how much of a lot of the windfall and a lot of the consumer surplus generated by this next phase of tech and of urban tech is going to disproportionately benefit people who are not living in these very sort of expensive or very dense areas like downtowns, and in a way start to actually reverse or create this new uh, dividend for a lot of the people in the community who honestly I most wanted to go to. It's like when I think about here in Toronto, for instance, um, it's like we have reached this new typical sort of like rich urban city pattern where a lot of the wealthy people have moved back downtown. And there is this sort of ring of suburbs, which is where all of the first generation immigrants live. It's where a lot of the life force of the city is. It's where a lot of the new businesses are being created. Uh, that my hope is that a lot of the benefits from a lot of this tech will actually accrue specifically to those people most of all. And that actually is something that gives me a lot of hope in general, but I'm not sure you know, to what extent that will come to pass and at what time frame. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the concerns, again, like going back to this question of what what is really public, what is really private, what is really you know the market, what is really the state, it's like if we, whenever the rollout of full like level four, level five autonomy happens. I mean, if cities are not really careful in how they think about 
road access congestion pricing, how street patterns are designed. I mean, like in the way that we replicated a lot of the, we are now replicating a lot of the strange land dynamics of more than a century ago uh, in our current system. I worry that we would replicate a lot of the mobility mistakes of the first car wave with, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. With subsequent waves of autonomous vehicles. Kim, you know, we, we've both seen startups that are trying to create neighborhoods for uh, self-driving cars with, without naming specific names. Can you talk about what, what that could look like? I, I think one of the things that is important is that it doesn't initially feel like, like, I think one of the issues, I think with the sidewalk and the Amazon HQ2 thing is that it seems so overwhelming and abrupt to people. And I think that if you're trying to work and meet people, you know, where they are, a lot of the changes that you're trying to make have to seem more subtle than, you know, how transformative they really are underneath the surface, if that makes sense. So I think a lot of really good kind of like neighborhood or human scale neighborhood design. I mean, these are not, they're not crazy futuristic experiences. I mean, this is about having um, construction that is still, you know, human scale streets that are intimate, um, having uh, communal spaces that can be used, you know, by different households and families, having flexible communal space that can convert from, you know, a communal dining area to some other type of group experience. And then just really thinking about like how you can use, you know, drop off and pick up in a really seamless, well-designed way. Like they're, they're not, I mean, they're not things that are going to sound crazy just because, Right. I think that, you know, I, th- I think that lots of things, you know, in, in, in tandem will feel very smooth, but you wouldn't want to have them, you know, I, I wouldn't want to take kind of the approach that say like a sidewalk or whatever. Is right. Happening. One of the companies that we work with at Social Capital, one of our portfolio companies is Urban Footprint, you know, which is run yeah. by Peter Kalfarp, who uh, the audience may know. He's been an urbanist for a very long time. And Uh, one of the things that he's doing is sort of like helping to design entire neighborhoods of cities in China. So they're bringing him over and saying like, tell us what we should do. We want, we want to make sure we don't remake all these mistakes. And I've seen some of the plans for these that he's shared around. It's like, they look shockingly normal, right? It's all these little aspects of the design to make them more walkable and to make them more successful and to make them more livable that are not sort of the radical reimaginations of the city. They are these incremental steps forward to make sure that, we are preserving, it's not just going for efficiency at all costs. It's preserving a certain kind of human scale interaction for all these things. It's going to be really important. Where, where do you expect to uh, take a few swings at this with, with this up, the Discover, Alex, whether it's housing or, or cities? What, what can you envision? Uh, we have no idea yet, to be totally honest. There's only one. So one thing that we do really like to do is we love working directly with cities and having them be our customers. So we work with an organization called 100 Resilient Cities that is um, through the Rockefeller Foundation that is a fantastic partner for us in terms of being able to say, hey, you know, we have a couple of companies on the Discover team that aside from Urban Footprint are all in stealth mode, but we'll be able to talk about them soon enough, who are going to be having cities directly as their customers. And one thing that we love to do is to say, hey, if you can, you know, one of the nice things about cities is that if you can figure out how to make something that a city wants to pay for, if you can figure out how to navigate the procurement process, if you can figure, if you can understand how to sell to them, there are a lot of cities 
right? And they have a lot of budget and they would love to buy what it is we have to sell to them if we can figure out how to make it in the right way. So for the time being, we're really excited about, you know, local governments themselves being customers as a really interesting way of shaping the way that a lot of these companies can go make. You know, we don't want to make uh, the N plus one company that's trying to sell to consumers to get their attention for the transition to driverless cars or something like that. We'd much rather say we would like to work with governments directly and figure out what it is that they want, because they probably know better than we do what are the problems in their community they want to solve, right? We would love to help them do that. So, so Alex, I want to be sensitive to your time and, and Kim will stay on a few minutes after. I'm, maybe as a, as a parting thought, I'm curious where you sort of see things playing out or maybe where you, where you want things to play out in terms of, in terms of how do we, how this gets solved? Like, do we see more, how does it become less negative sum if at all? Do we see more, you know, co-ops or co-living or using spaces in different ways or I don't know, are people engaging more in virtual reality and that changes what, what, how we, you know, see um, where we live? What do you think happens or what do you want to happen? And so in all honesty, my point of view about this is that this is not a problem of technology. This is a problem of, you know, in part about policy and in part about our attitudes towards ownership and who has the right to what. You know, what makes all of this, you know, in some sense negative sum, like I said before, is, you know, the specific rights of landowners and your position as a homeowner to effectively exclude other people from doing things. So like if I am a homeowner in Atherton, you know, and if I am using both my rights as a homeowner and my clout as a homeowner in order to block development proposals and to block the Caltrain from going through with electrification, all other things like that, it's like, well, that's something that we're going to have to come together and say, maybe this isn't something that we want, right? Maybe this is something implicit to land ownership and implicit to power that we would like to not have. Technology is not going to solve that. This is my opinion. That is not, we cannot expect technology to accomplish this. What we can expect is for people to change this. You know, like Kim was saying, which is that the power of government to get things done is immense when done right. And that's my personal belief that the best thing that we can do as technologists and as investors is not try to build tech to fix the problem. It's to build tech that helps cities do well. Because when cities are doing well and when state governments are doing well, then they are more in a position to actually enact important things that they want to get done. I would much rather they implement these types of changes to solve problems around housing and land ownership and to have them be in a position where they can do so because they are flush and because things are going well, because we've helped provide them with technology to succeed. That's my point of view on this. So there's, there's a reason that I'm both involved in the private sector and involved in the public sector, and it's precisely because we need to do both. Um, I think there are certain areas in which um, entrepreneurs can help. I mean, if you look at different approaches to uh, modular construction or prefab housing, uh, that could be one. If you look at different types of you know, non-predatory shared equity mortgages that enable people to get into homeownership at a lower price point and maybe like diversifies their dependence on this single asset as the source of their wealth. On the public sector side, I mean, been heavily involved in looking at everything from creating, you know, a new affordable housing financing in California to changing um, zoning regulations and permitting. And, and you kind of have to do both things at the same time. But like, I, like, like Alex said, I mean, this is really a very fundamental core cultural issue at the base of at the base of American culture, which is also derived from like the, the, the English, you know, which is around this expectation of homeownership as uh, you know, the American dream. And I think it's important to emphasize 
the American dream wasn't originally about homeownership. The, the phrase originated in 1931 by a writer named James Truslow Adams. And at that time, the American dream was a dream of a quote, a dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. And he added on to that, it is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and recognized by others for what they are. And so, you know, this, 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 this language, you know, a generation was contorted into um, something associated with homeownership in the 1970s and 1980s. And so I think it, at the base of it has to be a significant cultural change that is paired with, you know, regulatory and policy change. And then ideally, obviously, also these also potentially new technologies pioneered by entrepreneurs around construction, perhaps. And so those, those in tandem could work to help ease some of these affordability pressures. Yeah, the other thing I would say is I, I think climate change is probably going to produce a significant challenge to how we think about a lot of these concepts over the next generation, right? So, you know, 15% of households in California are in a wildland urban interface area. Um, you know, it's like million plus homes, millions of homes that are um, at risk of fire. Also millions, you know, homes that are on um, the shore that are at risk of sea level rise. And so I think a lot of the changes in unpredictable and extreme weather events over the next generation may challenge some of these notions about um, the stability of, you know, a home over multiple generations. A couple of things I want to dig in further. So if, if you could wave a wand on the policy side and, and make any decisions that would have the highest leverage, what might those look like? I mean, there's some, uh, like Glenn Well, for example, is proponent, proposing sort of this concept of harburger taxes, which changes, you know, private property to shared ownership where you could list your property, uh, the property value, but then uh, at any given time, but then you'd also be liable to sell it. I think so sort of like radical ideas like that versus ones that are more quotidian. If you could wave a wand and change anything, what might that look like on a policy side? Well, I mean, the the problem, I mean, the problem with waving a wand and immediately making a change like that, or even suggesting Glenn's idea, and I know Glenn well, is a lot of these things actually have to be phased in over like 30 or 40 or 50 years because the um, changes in asset values that they would instigate probably would be too sudden or extreme. And you would have a lot of people who, you know, might lose or have their life savings affected if you kind of implemented like a very immediate sudden change to homeownership finance. But, you know, in the long run, I mean, I think that is this large question about like, is it a smart thing to encourage individual Americans to put so much of their wealth into a single asset and to be so highly leveraged against it. And I think that we saw 10 years ago, there's, there are consequences to that. And there are also consequences to the way that we tried to rehabilitate that system in the affordability crisis that we see today for uh, millennials and Gen Z going forward. So we have to figure out a way that um, we, you know, can treat, housing, you know, is more of what it's like core original function is, which is shelter. And then also at the same time, in order to get to that place, you have to figure out different ways and different tools that Americans can use to, you know, save and accumulate wealth in a reliable, predictable way. Yeah. And you're excited about the idea, but it would have to, about that idea in particular, would have to phase out. Glenn's idea, Glenn's idea, like if you were to propose it realistically, like in a, in a community, I think a lot of voters and particularly like 
older voters who, you know, are the ones with the highest propensity to turn out would probably get very scared by that. Um, and so it would take a lot of education to, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily pick Glenn's idea, but like I, we both like, you know, admirers of Henry George and we both like, you know, we're both into this idea that, you know, people need to think about land wealth and housing wealth differently, but I don't know if I would, you know, go for um, his taxes idea per se. Which ideas would you propose that you think are more realistic and and impactful? You know, I think that you would have to look at federal policy in terms of inverting kind of the regressive structure of homeownership subsidies. So you'd want to subsidize upper middle class homeowners for the mortgage interest deduction less, and then you'd want to increase rental uh, Section 8 subsidies or um, low income housing tax credits more. Um, on the lower income side. So like making the entire federal housing system, financing system less regressive. And then on the other hand, you'd probably, you know, you'd need to find a new different type of savings tool, like generalized savings tool that isn't homeownership for most American households. And I'm not sure what, you know, structure that would be. But, you know, the current system is that, you know, we financially subsidize and encourage people to put all of their wealth into a single asset. And so, you know, now today, if you look at the modern kind of financial system, there are, there are other alternatives to that, but we would just need to figure out what those are. And can you sort of uh, expand deeper into the cultural change that needs to happen and what you think needs to be true for that to occur? I mean, it may end up happening by necessity, to be honest, right? So, you know, if you look at California and you look at homeownership rates generally, if that homeownership rate continues to fall, you're going to see a larger number of constituents and voters um, as tenants. And they eventually over time will, you know, if they grow sufficiently large in size and they will start to exercise their power in a more politically meaningful way than they have in the past. And that would change the balance of policies that favor tenants vis-a-vis homeowners and vice versa. So some of that could be, you know, at, at, at a, a housing typology level that could be like, you know, being more open to co-housing. And I'm not talking about it in just, you know, a millennial or Gen Z sense or like of, of a bunch of like 20 somethings like living together. But I'm also talking about it in the sense of like, you know, we have an aging population. We're going to have a need for more multi-generational households where families are going to need, you know, care for both elders and care, care for children. And so the ability to take our single family home structure and actually support more missing middle housing that supports a greater diversity of housing types and also incomes that it's accessible to is a cultural change that could happen. You know, just getting people comfortable with a different range of housing types in, 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 in suburban neighborhoods could be one thing. And then, like I said, with the tenant and political power question, I don't know how that's going to play out, but like there are a substantially larger number of renter households in this country today, particularly among younger generations. And so it'll be very interesting to see how they exercise political power and change legal norms around them going forward. Do you think co-living will take off as a mainstream thing? Co-living in what sense? How do you define it? I guess like uh, startups like Common. So the one thing that I would emphasize with Common is in that particular type that you're talking about, which is like venture-backed, they're actually reviving a very old type of housing stock that used to be very powerful, uh, sorry, very much more widely used in San Francisco and cities like New York at the turn of the century. So like a century ago, that type of housing stock, which is single room plus kitchen, sorry, single room only, and then a shared kitchen, that used to be 10% of the city's housing stock. 
a century ago um, because we had lots of different types of workers actually at all different income levels from um, people who could access like fancy, you know, like four four seasons hotel living all the way down through boarding houses. And it was just very common. And then it came, it fell out of favor once we engaged in the suburbanization, you know, federal project. And so um, we kind of forgot about it as, as a housing stock. And now like there's a number of small startups that are just kind of trying it. And I think that, you know, some are doing well. I mean, from what I understand, Star City has a very large deal is to do potentially hundreds of units in San Jose. So, and I mean, is it something that I could see like a certain demographic of people wanting for sure. At the same time, like we also have to be open to the idea that there's lots of different kinds of co-housing and not co-housing just targeted for that particular demographic. Right. So, you know, co-housing could be a three or four generation household um, living under one roof. Right. And that that's the type of housing or type of household situation that is more common in other countries that has been less common in the United States, but maybe it will become more common now. Um, given that we have a rapidly aging population. One thing I wanted to touch on, which I know is its own se- separate two-hour podcast, much longer podcast, but, perhaps it, but you've gone super deep on it with us briefly, is, is homelessness. And maybe a couple of things we can address perhaps are maybe the, just the biggest misperceptions or misunderstandings that people have around the problem and around uh, the dynamics of the problem and around potential solutions. The biggest thing that basically reporters basically end up doing every 10 years, and it's like a very classic, almost cookie cutter set of stories, which is like, is just humanizing people in this experience. These are people, like they're human beings. They, and and, and you, we're solely defining them by one single characteristic, which is the fact they don't have a house or don't have like a place to, to sleep. And people cannot have housing for all sorts of reasons. When you're walking the street, like there's one perception that a person experiencing homelessness looks like this or has, you know, a set of issues that may include mental health or drug use or whatever. But the reality is like chronic homelessness is like a small, you know, it's a minority percentage of the total number of people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco. Um, It might be 2000 out of 7,000 people, but the other 5,000 people you won't see because they will be sleeping in cars or they won't have a, you know, a stable place to stay. Like they could be families moving from couch to couch or something like that. Um, So most people experiencing homelessness are more like situationally homeless or situationally without housing. And there are actually relatively modest investments that you can do that make a significant difference for um, people who are more situationally homeless. And, you know, the city of San Francisco actually takes 50 people off the street every single week, which is remarkable unto itself. I think if you can imagine like, Imagine if you were in the position of a caseworker or someone working for the city government and you had to like place 50 people every week in the particular kind of housing market that we have, that's a hard thing to do. And then at the same time, however, like 150 people, more people are losing their housing every week. And so it's, it's a constant cycle. And so it's not always the same people that are experiencing homelessness. And then also people can lose their housing for a whole range of reasons. Like, there are different, you know, there are folks who are veterans and actually under the Obama administration, we significantly reduced under both the George W. Bush and the Obama administration, we significantly reduced veteran homelessness. There's also like a whole category of about a thousand or 1200 transitional age youth um, who are 18 to 24, 18 to 25. Many of them come to San Francisco because they, um, 
we have a lot of like uh, LGBTQ uh, youth who come from other parts of the country or state and they don't feel, you know, accepted or they maybe they feel disowned by their families because of their sexuality um, and they end up coming to the city and like relatively small interventions can make a huge difference. Right. And I've met lots of folks from that age category who've gone, who have full-time jobs who, you know, potentially now work in, even in the tech industry or in other parts of the city and can, you know, comfortably house themselves now. It's just, they needed, you know, a support for a small period of time. And then chronic homelessness is obviously a lot more complicated um, and expensive because like the solution there is, you know, you know, particularly if it's like an older, older person and maybe they have like a traumatic brain injury or something else like that. I mean, you just got to get them into permanent supportive housing and, which is just more expensive to do. So, I mean, like, you know, I think the misconceptions overall are like, people think it's one type of person. It's actually many different types of people, 7,000 people. And um, the city does have like a system for placing people. It's just that it's, it's constant. And there are always constantly new people losing their housing because of the, un, you know, how for, forbidding and unforgiving our, 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 our housing market is in this, this region. Yeah. It all, it all ties together. And, and, and we talked about the pro- misunderstanding of the problem. How about on the solution? Cause sometimes there's this thing of, Oh, if, you know, if we only allocated X billion dollars, you know, very small, relatively small amount of money, it could be quote unquote solved. What, what do people misunderstand or is it, or is that accurate? <laughs> or are of that accurate? I mean, on certain categories, it is addressable on, okay. So veteran homelessness dropped 50% from 2010 to 2018. That's pretty significant. And that happened because of a direct directed intervention um, that the federal government funded and pushed um, with transitional age, age youth homelessness. That's actually really, really addressable. Chronic homelessness is more expensive in terms of the overall cost. Again, like I think, if you look overall at the United States, like the U S government spends between three and $6 billion a year on homelessness. And then we're subsidizing homeownership by orders of magnitude more than that. And then if you look at San Francisco generally, like if you think about our housing market, like housing, if you look at all the, you know, aggregated market value of all the residential housing units in San Francisco, I mean, they probably went up by several hundred billions of dollars in the last since 2012 and against that we're spending you know you we had been spending between 250 and 300 million dollars a year on homelessness it's kind of drop in the bucket relative to how much overall real estate value and rents have increased over the last seven years so i mean i think i think the thing that's important to emphasize is like every time our housing market gets twice as expensive it should not really be that surprising that it might also get twice as expensive to address the consequences of that for people who can't keep up with the, the housing market um, because it costs that much more to provide them with rapid rehousing subsidies or it costs that much more to buy land to turn into affordable housing. For the stuff that is addressable, can you sort of resummarize the stuff that is, is really effective or is high leverage? And then for the stuff yeah. that... Is- I mean, the city started engaging this thing called problem solving. I mean, basically they, there are small things that you can do at critical points in a person's kind of housing journey or experience that make a huge difference. So like in some cases, they'll talk to people experiencing homelessness and they'll ask like, where was the last place that you slept overnight? And then they'll realize that a family member 
didn't have an extra bed or couldn't afford an extra bed for them. So like the city will be like, cool, we will buy you. We will just buy you a bed so you can stay with your aunt or your grandma or whatever. Or, you know, like if you start working with them, there's a nonprofit called Project Homeless Connect. Um, It's more, they don't provide housing, but they they do a lot of connections to services. And there's things like just someone needs to get to a job interview the next day and their glasses broke or they need a haircut or they need to look presentable or something like that. If you can have the right intervention at the right time, like that makes a huge difference for them. And then for more serious cases where there's a lot of other, other kind of issues at play, particularly if you have substance issues or mental health issues, um, you have to kind of go towards the housing first model, which is like people need to be in stable housing before they're really able to address a lot of their other compounding issues. So, I mean, I think if you could imagine if you were in a situation where you couldn't sleep somewhere safely every night and you were worried about getting your stuff stolen or getting attacked or getting assaulted in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, I think it would be really hard to um, work through any kind of mental health issues And that kind of stress would also aggravate or worsen a lot of mental health issues. I mean, this is another misconception people have, which is like people think the mental health is the precipitates the loss of housing. In many cases, the loss of housing precipitates the mental health issue. So, you know, in that case, if you can get someone stably housed, you know, for it might take a month to several months, then they're much better positioned to address any kind of other surrounding issues. And and what about for the, the population that's much less addressable. What what what, what could we? Or, or that's we, what I said. I mean, it's it's how it would be housing. It would be housing. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for for coming on. It was really fun hearing you and Alex go back and forth and bring different perspectives. And I always really enjoy talking to you and hearing your your take on on this. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 